of uh, lectures on Osniel. Uh, John 17. Now, as I look ahead to next week, uh, we will be coming to the Passion narrative, which is the arrest and the trial of Jesus in chapters 18 and 19. Uh, it's going to take me a couple of weeks to do this very complex, detailed, and rich narrative, uh, but it will be far more uh, perspicacious than uh, perhaps what you heard in the first hour tonight. And uh, it should be uh, fairly straightforward, and there will be, as I said, a number of handouts. Uh, so uh, next week, the very elaborate passion, the beginning of the very elaborate passion narrative of the fourth gospel. It is wonderful, wonderful stuff. Now, John 17 and the Lord's valedictory. The valedictory conclusion, in fact a valedictory conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's covenantal farewell concludes with the Lord's benedictory intercession. The Lord's Prayer here in John 17 has been called His High Priestly Prayer. As such, this prayer inaugurates the work of supplicatory intercession, the work of prayerful intercession which Christ continues to pour out before the throne of the Father on behalf of those given to him from before the foundation of the world. The prayer of Jesus inaugurated upon the imminent approach of his hour, the prayer inaugurated for his disciples in that supper room, is a prayer that continues for all his disciples until he comes. The believers for whom Jesus intercedes in anticipation of his cross are the believers for whom he continues to intercede in retrospection to his cross. The audience in John 17 is the 11 disciples, but it is more than they. It is you. The ones for whom Jesus prays in John 17 include the disciples, but he prays for more than they. He prays for you. Oh, Mary, pray for us. Blasphemy. Utter, unredeemable blasphemy. Jesus alone intercedes. Jesus alone faces the hour. Jesus alone acts the high priest. Jesus alone pronounces his benediction upon us, his testamentary benediction upon us. The prayer of John 17 is the capstone of the leave-taking discourses of our Savior. It is the climactic conclusion of his longest continuous speech. The setting, Jerusalem, the context, Passover, the dramatis personae, the persons of the drama, 
Jesus who prays, the Father to whom Jesus prays, the disciples for whom Jesus prays. All this is retrospective. It draws us back to other Jerusalem visits, back to other Passover celebrations in the Gospel of John, back to other characterizations of Jesus in this Gospel, back to characterizations of his Heavenly Father and the disciples. We are not amazed. No, we are not amazed that the vocabulary of John 17 is retrospective, climactically retrospective. The words are poignant, forging links with what has gone before, what has been said before, what has been revealed before. If the Passover was commemorative, then this prayer of our Lord is commemorative of his words and deeds from John 1.19 to John 16.33. We will not begin to fathom the depth of this prayer of Jesus unless we exhaust the retrospective vector which tells us he is culminating all that he has said and done. He is bringing everything that he has said and done before this chapter to its culminating climax. I will not reach the bottom of this prayer tonight. There is not time to connect every link of John 17 with its retrospective antecedents in the book of Jesus' signs and the book of Jesus' hour. But the links are there so that the reading, exposition, teaching, preaching on this text must not remove the prayer from its context, must not disconnect this prayer from its climactic yet retrospective relationship to John's narrative of Jesus. No. John 17 must be read expounded, taught, and preached in connection, in retrospective connection with what Jesus says and does in the whole of John's gospel. By now, you know my method. You know my articulation of Gerhardus Voss's biblical theological method. By now, you are anticipating my next remark. By now, in sound biblical theological fashion, you are already at my next point. By now, you are learning to think biblically theologically. By now, you are hungry for more than milk. By now, you are yearning for meat, for the deep riches of a Jesus who refuses the dichotomy between the modern preacher and the ancient text. So that now, having considered John 17 retrospectively, you have learned to also consider John 17 prospectively. If Christ's high priestly prayer is an analepsis reflecting on the past history of redemption in word and deed, then by now you have learned that Christ's high priestly prayer is a prolepsis too, 
anticipating the history of redemption which lies in front of Jesus. By now you know that John 17 is united to the previous history of redemption and you know by now that John 17 is united to the future history of redemption. Retrospective and prospective biblical theological vectors are contained in this chapter, yes, in John 17. By now, you know my method. You know my articulation of Gerhardus Voss's biblical theological method. By now, you understand that the retrospective and prospective vectors are not static. They are not atomistic. By now you understand that the retrospective and prospective vectors are dynamic. They are organic, like a living, breathing organism. By now you realize that the retrospective and prospective vectors are suffused with the intersectional. They are permeated by the interface between the vertical and the horizontal. By now you understand that the scripture... John 17 cannot be read, preached, taught statically, atomistically, unorganically, topically. By now, you understand that the scripture, John 17, must be read eschatologically. Retrospective prospective, vertical, horizontal, under the canopy of eschatological intrusion. So that John 17 is related to what Jesus has already said and done in John's gospel. John 17 is related to what Jesus is about to say and do in John's gospel. John 17 is horizontally related to this present eon John 17 is vertically related to the eon which is above. John 17 is an intersection of the intrusion of the above into the present, the eschatological into the temporal. John 17 is a revelation of what the heavenly high priest did in time past and what he continues to do in time present because he is the glorified high priest of time future. The scripture is not a wax nose shaped and twisted to whatever angle you impose upon it. The scripture is a living, breathing organism because Christ lives and breathes organically dynamically, redemptive historically, eschatologically in the scriptures. The wax nose approach de-Christologizes scripture. The relevance reductionism de-eschatologizes the scripture. Indeed, the moralistic approach de-scripturizes a scripture by reducing the Bible to the level of a how-to book. You can pick them up in any Barnes and Noble. 
you may affirm the highest orthodox doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, but the way you use the, the Bible may reduce it to a wax nose, verily cutting the life out of it, rendering it a dead letter for your agenda, removing Christ from the center and replacing him with post-enlightenment subjectivism. All the world loves such moralistic, topical, alleged preachers. The retrospective vector is iterative, in fact, reiterative. By that I mean chapter 17 again repeats the imagery, the vocabulary, the biblical theology of the preceding portion of the gospel. Look at this pregnant language. Glorify, verse 1. Eternal life, verse 2. Knowledge, verse 3. Revelation or manifestation, verse 6. The antithesis, verse 14. Joy, verse 13. Sanctification, verse 17. Incarnation, verse 18. Union with Christ, verse 21. Participation with God, verse 22. Love of God, verses 23 and 24. We have had it all before. All of it is the Johannine vocabulary of the previous chapters. Before Christ goes to the cross, he prays that all the treasures, all the richness, all the fullness of what he has brought down from above, all the fullness of what he has displayed through his incarnate word and work, all this may immerse, may possess, may fill up the lives of his disciples. The themes and words of Jesus' prayer are interwoven with a rich tapestry. They are interwoven throughout this magnificent gospel. And here we have the full panorama. Every word, every theme of chapter 17 beckons you to go back, to go back through the riches of the gospel to glorify Christ, to know Christ to rejoice in Christ, to see the revelation of Christ, to be sanctified in Christ, to be set apart from the world in Christ, to be united to Christ, to be identified with Christ, to love Christ. Even so, the story of John 17 goes beyond Jesus' life at this particular moment of intercessory prayer. For Jesus prays that you may go on glorifying Christ, that you may go on knowing Christ, that you may go on rejoicing in Christ, that you may go on seeing the revelation of Christ in His Word being sanctified in Christ, being set apart from the world in Christ, being united to Christ, participating in Christ, that you may go on loving Christ as your best beloved. Thus the prayer of Jesus in John 17 is a cameo. It is a miniature cameo 
of the whole gospel. Retrospectively, prospectively, vertically, horizontally, the entire gospel is here in John 17 in a nutshell. The literary markers delimiting chapter 17 are clear. Tauta, these things, concludes the third farewell discourse in chapter 16, verse 33. These things, Tauta, opens the prayer of Jesus in chapter 17, verse 1. Tauta, these things, opens the arrest of Jesus in chapter 18, verse 1. The very same structuring word. Therefore, we are assured that chapter 17, 1 to 26, is a self-contained literary unit. Structural subdivisions within the chapter are not as clearly delimited. Most commentators resort to a thematic division, and most concur in something like prayer for glorification, prayer for the disciples, prayer for unity, the last often-headed prayer for the church. More detailed outlines suggest verses 1 to 5, glorification, verses 6 to 8, revelation, verses 9 to 19, prayer for the disciples, verses 20 to 24, prayer for unity, verses 25 and 26, love of God in his own. But there is no clear definitive structure evident from the flow of this chapter, and that's the reason I have given you no handout. I would like to suggest that the meaning of the Lord's Prayer is related to the light vert or the key word which dominates these verses. And you will notice that that key word is the verb to give in Greek didomai. That verb occurs 17 times in this chapter. In verse 2, three times. In verse 4, once. In verse 6, two times. In verse 7, once. In verse 8, two times. In verses 11, 12, 14, once each. In verse 22, two times. In verse 24, two times. Add it all up, 17 times. The word give. From the verb to give occurs in this chapter. The verb describes the action. Remember, verbs are action words. The verb describes the action of bestowing upon, transferring to, donating to, conferring upon someone a gift, a prerogative, a blessed possession. Now, will you notice further that there is a gift chain to what is given. A gift chain. Every instance of this verb to give is a link in the chain of a particular aspect of the gift. It's like a woman's necklace, a chain necklace. Each one of these is hooked together. You take one of the links out and the chain collapse. It is a seamless circle of the love of God the Father in Christ Jesus the Son through the Holy Spirit to those who have been linked.
to him by grace. Notice, the Father gives to the Son. The Son gives to those who are His. The Father and the Son give to their own. What is given is solely the prerogative of the Father and the Son. The world cannot, is unable to give it the antithesis between the arena of the givers and the arena of the world is again emphatic. Thus, what is given flows exclusively from the giver, namely God the Father and God the Son. And what is given flows exclusively from the arena they inhabit. By now, I do not have to surprise you with the word for this arena. The givers and the gift are eschatological. Jesus' prayer is a revelation that the eschatological givers and their precious eschatological gift are flowing down to those who belong to them, their precious possessions. What is the first giving mentioned in this prayer? Verse 2. All whom thou hast given him. The eschatological possession belonging to the Son, being given to the Son, is declared in John 17, 2. But now more than the possession of the Son, or coterminous with the possession of the Son, is what the Son himself gives to those whom he possesses, to those who belong to him and his Father, that he may give them eternal life. The life which is given to those who belong to the Son is the life of eternity, the life of the arena of the giver, the life antithetical to the life of the world, the life of the eschaton. The gift chain grants eschatological possession and linked to that, eschatological life. Jesus is praying that as a result of his glorification, his death and resurrection, as a result of his glorification, those who belong to him will have the life of heavenly glory. They will have it. They do have it. It is a gift to them now. It is a gift to them not yet. It is an eschatological gift belonging to them now and forevermore. The gift chain continues. It contains knowing. Here is a powerful biblical concept, knowing as a husband knows his wife, as a wife knows her husband intimately, completely, passionately. The gift of possession is the gift of being possessed by God the Father and God the Son. The gift of living is the gift of being made alive by the life of God the Father and the life of God the Son. The gift of knowing is the gift of being known, being known of God intimately, being known of God completely, being known of God passionately. This is life eternal, that they may know Thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. Verse 3, there is a knowing. So intimate, 
that no intimacy of this world can compare with it. It can only be a faint, faint suggestion. The eschatological gift chain continues. The next link is the name of God, verse 6. Those belonging to God the Father and God the Son possess the name of God. His name is written on their foreheads. His name of ownership, His name of lordship, His name of servanthood is on them. And having been given the name of God, having been called by name the children of God, they receive, they understand, they believe the Word of God, end of verse 6. Receiving, understanding, Believing the Word of God is a gift, verse 8. It is an eschatological gift because it is as though the receivers are sitting before the face of God listening to every word that proceeds from His sacred mouth. The trivialization of the Word of God, the trivialization of the Word of God, the reduction of the Word of God to the agendas of the world the flat reduction of the Word of God to accommodate the world, the culture, the needs of our time, is a refusal to belong to the eschatological arena. It is a refusal to belong to the eschatological world. It is a refusal to hear the Word of God as proceeding from His heavenly throne. It is a refusal to understand and believe that in the hearing of the word you hear the very voice of God in all of its eschatological glory and majesty. The world wants you to reduce the word of God to the relevant, the pragmatic, the anecdotal, the humorous, the slick, the polished, canned sermon that you bought from the sermon preparation service and downloaded from the internet complete with jokes, illustrations, Quotations from Moltmann to Madonna. The world wants preaching that connects with every this-worldly relevance gimmick because the prince of this world knows that those are throwaway sermons. They're throwaways. They don't translate anyone into the arena of the gift. They only leave them earthbound. They don't draw anyone into the glory of heaven the awesome majesty of the speech chamber of the one who lived for you, who died for you, who rose again for you, who sits at the right hand telling you his precious words by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, words of eternal life, words of intimate, passionate knowing of God the Father and God the Son, words of the precious name of God by which you are now called, words of faith by which you are transported in the world to come Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, even now until you come to that world to come at last when your possessor, your giver, possesses you with a consummately eschatological gift. How many sermons have you heard on John 17 from Reformed pulpits? Not many, because too many Reformed pulpits are obsessed with the earth, with the world, with relevance, with anecdotes, with stories, with illustrations. John 17 is too heavenly oriented to be reduced to worldly horizontalism. John 17 is antithetical to the world. I am no more of the world. That's not Denison. That's not Voss. That's Jesus. Verse 11. 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Once again, that's not Denison. That's not Voss. That's Jesus. Verse 14. If I talk like that, if Voss reads like that, it's because, by the grace of God, we're trying to think like Jesus thinks. And we are not controlled by anybody's programs or agendas on the face of this earth. And don't try to make us be controlled. Because Jesus is our Lord and his word is our ultimate authority. This is inerrant scripture. These words of Jesus in verse 11 and 14 are inerrant scripture. They are more. They are the very words of Jesus Christ. They're not the words of Paul. They're not the words of John. They're not the words of a man given by the Holy Spirit to the man. These are the ipsissima verba Christi, the very words of Christ. Son of God, ontic deity, very God of very God. They are not to be qualified. In the face of these words, how can any preacher, any teacher of the word reduce the text to the world? Begin and end his preaching and teaching with the world. The sermon begins when the world of heaven is displayed through the text. No, the sermon doesn't begin when the practical application starts. The sermon begins when heaven itself is displayed through the text. The sermon begins when Christ is seen as the application. No, I'm not afraid of the word. But what I don't like about the word is it carries a whole lot of garbage, a whole lot of baggage which describes exactly what the reductionist approach to the Word of God preaches, teaches, and promotes. That's why I don't like the Word. But I'm not afraid of the Word. Because where the text comes to bear upon your life is where your life is merged into the Christ of the text. That's participation, not application. That's identification, not application. That's union with Christ, not moralism, not topicalism, not anecdotalism, not cultural relevancism. So I'm not afraid of the word. But let's have the word mean Christ. Not everything else but Christ. Or Christ tacked on to the end in two minutes or three minutes as a kind of, all right, we'll save it so that they don't walk out thinking it was just a Jewish synagogue exhortation. We'll use Jesus at the end. Any 
odd fellow Toastmaster can do that. You've baptized your sermon with Christocentricity because you put Jesus as a stinger on the end, like you know, like John Philip Sousa puts the stinger at the end of his marches. Jesus is all through chapter 17. He's not at the end of this chapter. He's not the last word, the conclusion. He's the heart and soul of every word, every letter of every word, every verse of this 17th chapter. Can your sermon be any less? Can your teaching be any less? Can your reading and studying of the scriptures be any less? The gift chain draws us into the arena of the giver. And there, coram deo, before God, there is the application. There, before the eschatological face of God, is the meaning of the text. Jesus does not begin his prayer with the earth. Jesus does not begin his prayer with a folksy illustration. Oh, by the way, do you remember uh, what we did last week in Jerusalem? Jesus begins his prayer with heaven, the arena of the gift. We dare not begin or end our preaching and teaching with the earth. To do so is to embrace the other side to the antithesis, which Jesus here condemns. I am not of the world. That is Jesus. That is Jesus on the antithesis. The gift chain includes the gift of the antithesis, the gift of the world to come, the eschatological world, the world of the givers. And that world is not a world of perdition. It is not a world of damnation. It is not a world of condemnation, malediction, or reprobation. That world, that glorious eschatological world, is the world of salvation, justification, benediction, Election. Here is a gift. Here is truly a gift. The antithesis of perishing. The antithesis of perdition. The antithesis of a world that reveals itself in this arena. God the Father and God the Son give the antithesis of the world that is perishing, verse 12. They give the life of the world that is being saved. God the Father and God the Son give the antithesis of the world of perdition, verse 12. They give the life of the world that is elected unto heaven. But, oh, Mr. Dennison, you are removing us too much from this world. Mr. Dennison, this world is attractive. It is beautiful. It is groovy. It is comfortable. Mr. Dennison, I want Jesus at the level of the world. Let me have Jesus with the world. I want Jesus down with me. Let's get down, Jesus. I want you to down with me in the world. Dear hearer, have you not read John 17, 24? Jesus wants you with him in his world. Dear hearer, have you not read John 17, 22? Jesus wants you to have his glory. The glory which he has in his world. Dear hearer, why do you try to bring Jesus down? Jesus wants to give you a gift. A glory of his world where he is with the Father. Jesus wants to bring you up 
He doesn't want you to bring Him down. He wants to bring you up. Your life in the world of God the Father and God the Son. The world that they have given to you. The world above. Your life attached to the life of the world to come already, now, as a gift in the chain. A semi-eschatological chain gift. Heaven is where your conversation lies. Heaven is your home. Heaven is the arena to which you belong by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You cannot, you cannot absolutize this world when you have been translated into heaven even now through Christ Jesus. To do so is to grieve your heavenly Father and the gift of His Son. But Mr. Dennison, how shall we then live? Mr. Dennison, how shall we live and act in this world? Dear hearer, have you not read John 17? There is a paradigm, fascinating paradigm laid out in this precious prayer of our Savior. It is a mirror pattern, a giver-receiver pattern, a reciprocal relationship unity. I have not focused on the issue of unity in this chapter, a chapter which has been the proof text for ecumenical unity since the launch of the Federal Council of Churches in 1905. The FCC, Federal Council of Churches, was the predecessor to the NCC, the National Council of Churches, which was founded in 1950. And, of course, there's the WCC, the World Council of Churches, launched at Amsterdam in Holland in 1948. Today, many mainline denominations use John 17 to support organic church unity. The most recent scheme, the so-called COCU, Consultation on Church Union, COCU, launched by Eugene Carson Blake in 1960, who was at that time the chairman of the National Council of Churches. These organizations are nothing less than ecclesiastical bureaucracies, bent on exercising power in the modern world, and that's why they have lobbies in Washington, D.C. They are political action agencies. Just ask the Jews, who are absolutely outraged at what the Presbyterian Church USA did last year at their General Assembly to divest themselves of any investment in the state of Israel. Politics, not gospel. Politics. In a world which today, if you looked at the images on the TV screen, 1.5 million Lebanese saying end of tyranny of Syria. 1.5 million people taking on the streets in an Arab tyranny asking for freedom and liberty. Go to it, George Bush. Let's have more of it. Uh, you may be looking at one of the greatest presidents in the United States with this tsunami that's sweeping across the Islamic tyrannical world. You may be seeing one of the most remarkable instances of foreign diplomacy in the history of Western civilization right now. You are living in a very exciting time. The Arab world is about to collapse. Its tyranny is about to collapse. The tyrants are in retreat. The armies are being withdrawn. Now I'm now post-millennialist. 
But if you know any Lebanese Christian that has wept and prayed for Beirut and Lebanon over the last 30 years, and I know many of them, if you know any Lebanese Christian, you know what today meant. Do you not know what January 30th meant in Iraq? Or what November meant in Afghanistan? Do you realize what history is being set in front of your eyes? Never before in the history of the Islamic world has this ever happened. Never! Since the Hijra and the 7th century of Muhammad himself. Foundations are crumbling. They are crumbling. And France and Germany had better look to which side they're going to pick. Well, this was not a political exercise. <laughs> but the agenda of the World Council, National Council, Federal Council are political, social, cultural agendas. And they have stood on the side of tyranny for years. How many of us remember the National Council of Churches defending communist tyrannies in Eastern Europe and sending money, collecting money from Presbyterian congregations and sending it to black power advocates and communist uh, Marxists in the third world? Yes, we remember it well, those of us that endured the radically activistic 60s. And now the tyrannical left wing in Western civilization is beginning to crumble as well. And when the Independent in England, the Independent, one of the most radical left wing newspapers in England, puts the headline last week, was Bush right after all? Huh? Ah, as Bob Dylan said, the times they be a changing. Yes, they be a changing. Well, these ecumenical organizations represent the Protestant equivalent of the Holy Roman Empire. Eugene Carson Blake, who launched CoQ, was not mislabeled the Pope of Protestant ecumenism. That's what they called him. Suffice it to say that the unity envisioned in John 17, 21, and 22 is a reflection not of political horizontalism, but it is a reflection of the ontological unity of the Father and the Son. That unity is mystical and invisible. Hence, the unity for which Jesus prays is that his followers may manifest the mystical unity of the communion of the saints together with the invisible bond that joins them to the Father and the Son. Eisegesis turns a precious eschatological unity into its temporal opposites, You who are sitting before me here, who love Christ Jesus in sincerity, you are one. One in Christ, one in faith, one in belonging to the eschaton, one in love of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one in love for one another. That is an invisible unity which you have because of Christ Jesus, and it cannot be taken away, even though you may not all be members of the same church. But back to the issue of how shall we then live and the paradigm of the mirror reflection. 
Have you noticed in this chapter how Jesus relates these themes, these images, these gifts in himself to his own? Have you observed that Jesus prays, what is in me, what is in the Father, let that be in those receiving the gift. What is in us, let it be in them. Eternal life in the Father and Son, eternal life in those who belong to the Father and the Son. Glory in the Father and the Son, glory in those who belong to the Father and the Son. Now, look at verses 16 and following. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. That is a mirror paradigm. Do you see it? What is in the Father and the Son is reflected. It is mirrored. It shines forth in those who belong to the Father and the Son. You sent me into the world. I send them into the world. Verse 18. The eschatological apostle, Jesus Christ, sends his semi-eschatological servant apostles, the disciples. I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified. Verse 19. What is in Christ is in those in Christ. Even the oneness motif. Notice, the unity theme is reciprocal. I in them, thou in me. Verse 23. And finally, the love of God that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them, and I in them. Verse 26. Here is how we shall then live. Mirroring Christ, reflecting the Father and the Son, united to them, living in and out of them and their heavenly world. Yes, the struggle is there. I will not minimize it. But the dynamic, the ethical dynamic is Christ-centered. It is heaven-centered. It is God-centered. It is eschatologically centered. Ethics must be done semi-eschatologically or ethics is subjectivism, moralism, Kantianism, and worse. John 17 is a prayer for you to live in heaven and out of heaven, in Christ and out of Christ, in God and out of God. That is your life and its living. Jesus has asked His Father to possess you, to possess you in the arena where He is, that glorious, gracious gift of belonging to his arena so that you may reflect, you may mirror that arena in this world, so that you may reflect, so that you may mirror the eschatological arena in this world, this world which belongs to the evil one. You are only light, you are the only light in this world which belongs to to the power of darkness. Jesus is praying in John 17 for you. Even now, that prayer continues. For he prays for you without ceasing. He ever intercedes for you as the great 
eschatological high priest who bears your prayers as a sweet-smelling offering to his Father and sanctifies every word of your prayers and purifies them in laying them at the feet of his beloved Father Almighty. There's a prayer life for you. There's a prayer life for you. You immersing yourself in the prayer life of Jesus in John 17. And now let your prayers cut forth. Oh, give us that new refrigerator that we need, or, uh, you know, Aunt Mary broke her toe, or whatever. Those are important needs. But they are not the lisps of heaven. You don't need a refrigerator in heaven, and Aunt Mary's broken toe is fine in heaven. Which doesn't mean you don't pray for the grace. But my point is, let's enrich those gimme prayers. Let's make them heavenly. And not just, give me this, give me that. Jesus is praying in John 17 for you. Praying that now and forever you will be united to him in the eschatological world to come. Even now as you mirror him in your pilgrimage through this world. Go in the prayer of Jesus and reflect that heavenly glory in your house in your job, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your church, in this world. That's what Jesus is praying for you tonight. Do you have any questions that uh, you would like to put on either of these chapters? Hi, Tracy. The question is, since Satan is judged already, it's been said that he is chained in darkness even now. Is that true? Yes, there is a now, not yet, chaining and restricting of Satan to the kingdom of darkness. That does not mean that he is not active in the world. However, he is limited since the death and resurrection of Christ in the deceit of iniquity, the fullness of the deceit of iniquity that, uh, that he can get away with, so to speak. Correct. Jesus has bound the strong man, and he is restrained in a way that he was not restrained before the incarnation of Christ. And that is an already not yet restraint. 
short. Go ahead, Tracy. You still have the floor. All right, the question is, is justification and now not yet dynamic? Uh, yes, it is. Let me use Christ as an illustration to try to let you see this. Was, just, was Jesus justified by his resurrection? He was. Will Jesus ever be other than justified from his resurrection on to his second coming and into glory? He will never be unjustified, will he? All right. Are you united to Christ Jesus by faith? You profess to be united to Christ Jesus by faith. All right. Are you justified now as Jesus is justified now? You are. Will you ever be unjustified in the future if you are united to the Christ who is justified now? No. So you are justified now and you will continue to be justified on into the future even at that final judgment. You are continuing to be justified as Jesus himself is. So read my article on the eschatological aspect of justification, which is on the krux.com website. You can find it under my name. I articulate or I try to explain what this now, not yet aspect of justification is. If you need more information on it, take a look at Ritterboss, Paul, an outline of theology where he talks about justification as an eschatological reality. But if you, see, if you put Jesus in the paradigm, you see yourself joined to Jesus, then you see Jesus justified once and for all, Jesus continues to be justified at every point in the future. He'll never be unjustified. You belong to Jesus. That's your paradigm. That's your story. David. All right, the question is, if Satan is condemned uh, already, or the accuser is, uh, uh, is crimped already, what's the reference in 1 John 2, 1? And uh, my response to that is that the imagery of 1 John 2, 1 is a kind of immunization of the semi-eschatological. In other words, it's a kind of realization in terms of the, uh, the tension of realizing where we are in that eschatological drama. You are caught into the advocacy of the Son on your behalf if anyone in this arena accuses you. All right, next week, the Passion Narrative, or at least part one.